You are listening to Appalachian Words, the show about language in Appalachia and the Great Smoky Mountains. I'm your host, Jennifer Heinmiller. I am the co-author of the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English, which is a historical dictionary coming out next spring. It's over 1.3 million words long, covers all sorts of words from Appalachia, from Ain't Me Over to Ziz Wheel to that special mountain treat that we all love, the stack cake. Actually, I've never had a stack cake, but I am dying to try it, as I've mentioned probably in half of these episodes. <laughs> so if you'd like to make a stack cake and bring it to me, I would not complain. <laughs> anyway... As we know, Appalachian English is a rich language with a history stretching back hundreds of years, but outside of this region, there are more stereotypes than honest conversation about the culture. So in an effort to bring the language and its history to a wider audience, I decided to start this show. And longtime listeners, you know, for each episode, I read and discuss entries in the dictionary, and I highlight Appalachian culture and history. And sometimes I talk a little bit about how the dictionary is set up and the process of compiling it. As always, I welcome your questions, comments, stories, any other message or things you would like to share with me. I've gotten so many wonderful messages lately, and I just want to say thank you again. It's it's so much fun uh, receiving each and every message and um, forming new new friendships. It's, it's really cool um, to know that people are listening, and I love hearing about parts of the language and culture that I wasn't even aware of before. And it's also great to know that um, certain traditions that are not part of my personal family tradition, um, but that I know about through my own research with this project, um, they're still being carried on. Um, I received a lovely email the other day um, informing me that uh, in parts of Western North Carolina, Decoration Day is alive and well, and I just love that. That's absolutely wonderful. I wish it was part of my family tradition and... Um, I'm Appalachian adjacent. Maybe maybe I'll have to make that part of the tradition because I think it's just a, a wonderful thing to carry on. So, welcome again back to the mountains and foothills of Appalachia. This is episode 12. So today I thought I would talk a bit about superstitions and beliefs in the mountains. Appalachia is kind of known to be a place with... Um, quirky beliefs. I I think I can say that without offending anyone. Um, Lots of superstitions here, kind of different ways from the rest of the country, um, partially because the history has been preserved, or at least it was, you know, until fairly recent times. Um, The history was preserved in large part due to isolation, which we've talked about, um, and a people who are very proud of their heritage and these traditions. It's also no secret that to people outside the region, some of these beliefs can seem a little creepy or weird or spooky, Um, especially, you know, when you watch things like Deliverance. You know, everybody always goes to Deliverance when they think about scary Appalachia and the weirdness of the people there. But, you know, really, it's it's just one way of thinking. Um, And I (laughs) I think it's safe to say that Deliverance is not representative of Appalachia as a whole. But anyway, so some of these beliefs um, still persist, and maybe you've heard of them, um, and I invite you guys to share with me your family superstitions if you're from any part of Appalachia. There are so many different ones, and in doing some research for this episode, I found so many different things. Um, A lot of them have to do with uh, death and health and sickness, of course. 
um, people looking for remedies or any kind of, you know, any kind of method to keep themselves and their families healthy and safe. Um, and then the rituals that would surround um, the dying process, um, what happens when people die uh, afterwards. But then there were other superstitions, such as um, signs that people would look for in the natural world to determine when and where they should plant their crops, um, what might be going on with an animal's behavior, or why a baby acted the way it did, why people got rashes, well, I guess that's going back to health, but all sorts of aspects of life are tied up in these superstitions. So I thought I would go through a few of them um, today. So some of the ones that we may know that are more widespread are things like, you know, holding your breath when you go past a cemetery. I know I've done this since I was a kid. I, I can't even tell you who taught me to do this, um, but it's kind of second nature to me now. And I was reading up on this and apparently the reason that we do this is so that the soul of someone who was recently buried there uh, is not inhaled <laughs> by the people who are going by the, the graveyard. So that, that was interesting to me. I never really thought about why I did it. I knew it was for luck um, in some way, but I wasn't really sure. I never really connected the dots. And it's interesting how a lot of the things we do, whether they're considered superstitious or not, um, just like that, you know, we do them without really thinking about, well, why, you know? Um, so some of the other ones, um, you know, things coming in threes, I think that, that idea is widespread, especially like deaths coming in threes. Um, there's some other things like, oh, going back to the graveyard, uh, theme. One of the things I found, uh, in Appalachian beliefs is if you point at a graveyard, your finger will rot off. I had never heard that before. So be careful about that. Um, and there are all sorts of omens of impending doom. Um, one of the ones that's much more widespread, I don't think this is just Appalachia, but if a bird hits your window, um, that can mean someone's going to die. One of the variants of this that I found uh, in my research was specific to owls. So if an owl is flying around during the day, or if an owl is looking in your window during the day, this can mean that someone close to you is going to die. So that, that was an interesting one to me. I mean, you know, kind of modern scientific thinking. I always try to be as logical as possible. My mind automatically goes to, well, does this owl have some sort of illness or is there something wrong with it because he's supposed to be nocturnal or what has something disturbed his environment? But hey, you know, who am I to say? Um, it could very well be, you know, something a little darker. Sorry for the pun. Anyway, um, a dog howling three nights in a row also means death is near. So there you have, you know, the night theme and then you have the set of three and death. Um, but not all of them are really dark. Um, so I thought that I would go through some of these by theme. So as you can imagine, there are a lot of them uh, regarding health and particularly babies. Now we know hundreds of years ago, of course, in the mountains, infant mortality was really high. Um, it, if a child survived, you know, to the age of five or seven, there was a good chance he was gonna make it because he had already, he or she, you know, not to be sexist, that child had already conquered so many childhood um, diseases or had been exposed to them and developed immunity, 
also had had exposure to any number of things, uh, mold, any any number of animals or or bug bites or things like that. I know, even you know myself as a child, I would be outside. You know, I got stung by bees, had to go to the doctor for it, broke my arm, all sorts of things. And this was with you know very modern conveniences. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it certainly wasn't in the mountains, at least not for the vast majority of the time. Um, but in those days, it was very much the folk medicine practices that we talked about uh, in the last episode. So I um, wanted to talk about a couple of the practices regarding babies, because these seem to have quite a bit of information. So some of these, let me just preface this by saying, it seems to be that there is a grain of truth um, for some of the superstitions around babies and caring for babies, uh, while others seem to be a little bit more judgmental, perhaps towards the mother or the people caring for the baby. So just keep that in mind as I go through these. So the first one we have is the word mark. Uh, And this is used as a verb, and we have a lot of evidence for this one. So the first one that we have is from 1949, uh, a novel by Arno that says she was craving greens bad. And if she didn't get some pretty soon, this child she carried would be marked with greens and would never in all its life get enough of them to eat. So in this case, mark means something that, well, marks a baby for life, something the child will carry with them for life. Now, this can be either a physical aspect, so it could be some sort of birthmark. There was the belief that if a woman um, suddenly touched herself on a part of her body, that part of the body on the baby would develop a birthmark. It could be something more um, abstract, Such as if the father of the child were doing something bad while the mother of the child were pregnant, uh, or even before that, um, the child would, you know, carry those bad habits through life. Um, So things like that, things that carry over into the baby's life. So we have a few more examples here. From 1989, we have Giardina, who says... There's many a way to mark a baby while it is still yet in the womb. A fright to its mother will render it nervous and fretful after it is birthed. If a copperhead strikes, a fiery red snake will be stamped on the baby's face or back. And a portentous event will violate a woman's entrails, grab a youngin' by the ankle, and wrench a life out of joint. That last one sounds particularly um, (laughs) unfortunate. Um, and then the second one there, the Copperhead. So that's that's interesting, like reading that one, I somehow thought of Harry Potter, unrelated, but. Um, and this is not specific about whether the Copperhead is striking the mother, um, although that would be the assumption here. Um, but the first example that they say, a fright to the mother will render the baby nervous and fretful after it is birthed. This is one of those examples where there's certainly a grain of truth in it. And it, you know, the people noticed this. And I would imagine that other cultures noticed this as well. But there's scientific evidence these days that shows that if a mother, uh, while she is pregnant, experiences a high level of stress or goes through some particularly traumatic events, um, the levels of adrenaline in her body are raised. And that can really affect the baby for the duration of its life. And it can result in the child being more anxious or 
prone to panic attacks and depression and, and um, things along those lines. That's something I recently learned, uh, not connected to studying Appalachian English at all. Um, but it was really interesting that that came up here. So then we also have the physical characteristic aspect. So in 1990, we have Cavender talking about uh, folk medicine again. So saying that a mark is a birthmark, physical characteristic, or a behavior trait caused during pregnancy by the mother having a frightening slash unfortunate experience or violating a taboo. So again, you know, it kind of, uh, it walks the line there of being judgmental, um, but that is the way that people thought about it. So we also have the verb scarify, and this also has to do with babies. So this is, um, this is going to be a tough one for me to get through. I'll just be honest right now. I'm a bit squeamish, but so scarify means to make a cut in the back of a baby to relieve the bold hives. And if you listen to the episode about uh, folk medicine um, and, and healing, uh, you'll know that there were uh, lots of, of beliefs about this illness of the bold hives or the bone hives, uh, lots of different names for it. But this was a, an illness that was believed to be caused by the liver in many cases in babies um, and the baby would be sick, but it wouldn't have a rash and there would be various methods to get this rash to break out on the skin. Um, and the thought was generally like if, if the rash broke out and the baby started, um, doing a little bit better, then they would survive. But if the rash never broke out, uh, the baby would die from becoming what some thought, uh, to be liver bound, um, or other, uh, various ailments associated with the illness. And it's still... I'm not exactly sure what the illness was, and it seems like, since there are so many different beliefs about it and different writings about it, it was probably a few different illnesses just referred to under the same umbrella name of bold hives. But in this case, uh, this was a particular method where they would try to um, relieve the baby of the bold hives. So in 1921, we have from Kentucky, Scarify, uh, and it, it could be pronounced scarify, as in to make a scar, or sometimes scarify. To mark with a scar, taken from a superstition among the hillsmen, that of scarifying infants for certain diseases. And this one is interesting because it's not specifically bold hives. I'm not sure exactly what other illnesses they might be referring to. Uh, but, you know, with babies and young children, there are any number of illnesses, even today. Um, and I'm sure back then, many, many more. From 1939, um, some of Joseph Hall's research, uh, Joseph Hall, if you recall, uh, it was his research that formed the backbone of this dictionary um, that I'm authoring. Um, so this is from one of his interviews that he conducted himself in White Oak, North Carolina. So this is to scarify make a cut in the back of babies with a razor and suck the blood through the end of a gourd. They say it makes children grow. I'm just going to pause there. <laughs> so this is a, a more general uh, health treatment type thing. So this one isn't specific to the bold hives or any one disease. Um, 
as to its accuracy, I can't say, but I will go ahead and insert another little legal disclaimer here. Please don't try this on your children and definitely don't try it on other people's children. I will not be held legally liable. That's all. <laughs> Moving on, 1996, uh, Cavender writes about the bold hives. When a baby has the bold hives, its fingernails turn black. What you did was turn the baby on its stomach and make two or three small cuts with the razor in the area over the heart. You then took a cow's horn and put it on the slits and then sucked the blood out, put the blood in a spoon and add breast milk to it and then feed it to the baby. Again, I just, I kind of have to pause to <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, settle down that uh, that squeamishness and i i have to wonder how this practice would have developed but that is apparently what they did uh in many areas um as to whether it cured many babies i don't know i'm not sure there are any peer-reviewed studies on that uh moving on to something a little bit uh, a little bit less gross less icky shall we say um so in the mountains and you know even today people plant gardens uh, right now my own garden i have just a tiny little garden uh, but i neglected it for i don't know maybe three or four days we had a, a spell of days where we just had storms every day like every afternoon it's that time of year right so the mornings are very humid and kind of overcast and then it'll clear up but you can feel the humidity just like building and building and you can literally see the clouds building as the humidity increases and you can just feel that it's going to storm. So um, almost every afternoon here for the past week or two, we've had these storms pop up in the late afternoon or evening. Um, and it seems that that's the time when I like to check on the garden. Um, but I've been busy with work and then I look at the weather and I just think, oh, I'll put it off. I'll put it off. Um, and then today I finally checked it and I discovered three cucumbers that are about the size of baseball bats. <laughs> so I will be looking for creative uses for those cucumbers because they're probably a little too big and bitter to eat just in a salad. But um, um, I actually found some recipes for cucumber bread that you would make similar in the way that you make uh, similar to the way you make zucchini bread. And I'm curious about that. And I also have to wonder if maybe people in the mountains long ago made some kind of cucumber bread because there were all sorts of breads. And um, I just started thinking about that. So I might experiment and report back. And if you've ever made cucumber bread or if you have uh, uses for cucumbers that are just enormous and threatening to take over your entire backyard, let me know. <laughs> anyway, back to the topic at hand. So there are also a lot of weather-related uh, superstitions um, related to planting, related to harvest, um, related to the phases of the moon and when you should or shouldn't do certain things related to agriculture, sometimes animals. Um, so we have a lot of evidence for these. And I mentioned uh, previously, I think the last episode, I talked about the dog days. Um, so there are a lot of superstitions associated with this period, which we are in the thick of. It's a cooler summer than usual here in Asheville, but you can still feel it um, in the evenings. I, It was a pretty cool day yesterday with a lot of rain in the morning and early afternoon. Um, and I decided to go for a run once the rain let up late afternoon. And 
I, I tell you the temperature increased probably 10 degrees over the course of about 30 minutes once the clouds moved out and you could feel it was August. It was unmistakable. So the dog days, that is the annual period of hot, sultry weather in July and August with which various superstitions and ailments are traditionally associated. So we have uh, evidence for this phrase all the way back to 1832. Apparently that year, according to a diary, the dog days set in early this year. 1961, the book Pigeon's Roost. The old timey date for dog days to begin is July 3rd, which is pretty early. Uh, goes on to say there's two other dates, which is July 4th and 14th, but the third day date is the most adhered to and dog days is the only superstition sign notice that is yet given in several almanacs and calendars. One adage that goes along with many other old sayings about dog days is that if it rains the first four days of it, we will have plenty of rain, and if there be no rain, it will be hot and dry weather. There's another saying that if chickens is hatched out during dog days, they will not live. 2007, a wonderful book called My Appalachia. Uh, the dog days of summer run from July until mid-August when the dog star rises and sets with the sun. It is a season of mold, mildew, and the pestilence of stagnant water. Mama and Granny Brock warned us about dog days. We children were told not to wade in the creeks because the stagnant water would make fall sores on our legs. I remember how impossible it was to stay out of the creek during the torrid days of summer when every bug bite and scratch turned into a sore. We were told that dogs went mad during dog days, so we were terrified of any strange dog that happened to wander our way. And this is um, definitely an interesting one, and, and certainly not 100% superstition. Um, if you've been in this part of the country this time of year, you know uh, the mold and the mildew. It's, it's pretty serious. Um, as well as they talk about the pestilence of stagnant water. It's not only stagnant water, at least not these days. I actually read a report a few days ago. The French Broad River, which uh, runs through Asheville, there's really high levels of E. coli bacteria this year. So if you're planning on kayaking or tubing or swimming there, uh, please be cautious. And it seems like that's been the case for several years uh, in this area. So the fall sores that they talk about, which is also in the dictionary if you're curious about that, um, the fall sores were likely caused by, yeah, a bug bite or something that uh, got infected in many cases, probably because they were going into these creeks that were just too warm. So the bacteria proliferated and it just doesn't make for a good situation, I would imagine. Also from 2007, uh, we have the Milne's book. One aspect of the astrological calendar year that is particularly observed by country people is the arrival of dog days. They come in about July 3rd when the dog star, Sirius, appears to rise with the sun. It is the brightest star in the constellation Canis Major. The weather on this day will foretell the weather for the growing season or the remaining period of dog days, which lasts 40 days. If there is even the slightest rainfall on this day, it bodes well for the crops. Beyond this, it is believed that birds and snakes go blind during dog days and that snakes are particularly venomous. At the same time, hawks whistle and the dog star rules. 
So that's interesting that this one uh, specifically gives a period of 40 days. And I have to wonder if that's uh, related to anything biblical um, or where that might come from, because the superstitions come from all sorts of places, um, but uh, many of them are rooted in the Christian tradition, especially from uh, the British Isles. So that's a curious one. So similarly, keeping with uh, the planet and star theme, we have light of the moon. Uh, this is also known as light moon, and this is a noun phrase. And this is the part of the lunar cycle between the new moon and the full moon, which is said to govern planting, domestic activities, the weaning or killing of animals, etc. Uh, hence the adjective light, which refers to of the moon, particularly in the first half of the lunar cycle. Um, and on, on the other hand, we also have dark of the moon. But for our purposes today, we're only going to touch on light of the moon. So from 1873, uh, we have a lot of planting rules for this period, the light of the moon. So this is by a book by Harney. We have leguminous plants must be set out in the light of the moon. Tuberous, including potatoes, in the dark of that satellite. I just love the way the sentence is written. I think we should use the word leguminous more often. <laughs> if you're with me on that, let me know. <laughs> leguminous plants. So we're talking about beans. <laughs> I guess he didn't want to sound um, too, too common um, and just say bean plants. You want to plant your beans during the light of the moon. But uh, the tubers during the dark of the moon. 1893, 20 years later, we have another book completely on superstitions in the Appalachian Mountains. Um, and this one is pretty descriptive. So we have what a vast array there is of credulous moon observers who scrupulously conform to all the phases of the moon as essential to all their affairs of business. They will not have a roof placed on a building, nor their pork salted down, nor corn, beans, fruit trees, or anything which bears its produce above ground planted in the dark of the moon, nor have a fence put up or potatoes planted or anything which yields edibles beneath the soil in the light of the moon. It would be labor lost in all such cases, for the roof would curl and crack open, the fence would sink into the ground, the pork would rise out of the brine. Even if weighted down, the vines would refuse to climb the supports or yield fruits, but would heedlessly run straggling about among the weeds, the esculent roots would disdain to bulb and become spindly and worthless. In short, disaster would ensue in all directions by taking the moon crosswise through negligence or willfulness. So it seems like if you were going to try to start a homestead in the Appalachian Mountains, um, that would be such a rookie mistake to take the moon crosswise. Um, and this was a very, very serious thing. People really took it seriously. And you can see how this one aligns exactly uh, with the examples we have from the book that was written 20 years prior to that, um, as far as the, the leguminous and other above ground plants being planted during the light of the moon and then um, your root vegetables being planted during the dark of the moon. I'm curious as to whether farmers and gardeners still adhere to these things. And I used to get the Farmer's Almanac, you know that uh, the little yellow paperback where you, you get it at hardware stores and various places. I used to get that every year. I had a pretty big garden when I was living in South Carolina 
Um, and it, I got it mostly for fun, but also to look at, you know, recommended planting dates. Uh, but there's a lot of information like that in the Farmer's Almanac. And I wonder, I hope they're still printing that and still talking about these old traditions. So moving on, so into the 20th century, 1907, um, in a book on folklore of North Carolina, the moon seems to exert a powerful influence on many agricultural and domestic affairs. All plants which produce fruit above ground must be planted in the light of the moon, not necessarily in a new moon. And all plants which produce fruit underground, potatoes and such, must be planted in the dark of the moon. So further evidence there. And then we also have a really nice one that talks about not only the light of the moon and dark of the moon, but the zodiac a little bit. So this is by Lunsford in 1926, again a couple decades later. Folklore. The writer has been vanquished time and again in this goodly land with argument to the effect that the earth has corners and a foundation and that the moon is placed in the heavens for signs and that therefore... The, quote, 12 signs of the zodiac may be absolutely relied upon as a true guide to poultry and hog raising, laying of worm fences, and planting of various crops. It is established beyond all question in some of our communities that the bottom rail of a worm fence should be laid upon the light of the moon and the top rail should be laid in the dark of the moon so that the fence will thereby curl together so securely that a Wilkes County ox couldn't push it down. This same principle also governs the time for killing hogs in some communities, and a little laxity in the enforcement of this rule may even affect the taste of the shortening bread. This one is really interesting. Um, I can't say that I'm familiar with Wilkes County oxen, but um, I guess we can gather from this example that they're pretty strong beasts. Um, and then what he's talking about here in, in the final sentence, the shortening bread. So that's a, a type of bread that they would make with um, shortening, uh, lard, things like that. A nice hearty bread. Um, so yeah, this one gets a bit more into the 12 signs of the zodiac. And I'm not uh, particularly well versed in that um, as far as the relationship to planting off the top of my head. But it would be interesting to investigate a little more deeply. And 10 years later, we have uh, Hyatt writing in a book, uh, 1937. You can't hardly get grease out in cracklins if you kill a hog on the light moon. So this is more specific to butchering animals, although it is related to the previous example about the shortening bread. So you are not going to be able to render uh, animal fat properly if you do it at the wrong time. And then finally, we have uh, 1952, Giles wrote, We plant things that ripen on the vine above the earth in the light of the moon, and we plant things which mature beneath the earth in the dark of the moon. The theory is that in the light of the moon, the pull is up. So things that ripen above the earth must be planted in the light of the moon to do well. And that to use a terrible pun here, sheds a little light on the matter, perhaps. Um, I can't speak to its accuracy, but it, I can definitely see the logic there. And I must apologize if you can hear some background noise. Of course, right when I decide to record, my neighbors decide to start doing some heavy-duty um, lawn renovations or garden renovations. So that's what that is, you know. 
life is never perfect. This is, uh, this is a very rustic show, as I've said before. So enjoy the sounds of real country life. <laughs> Um, but a few of these examples also mention uh, worm fences or rail fences, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And if you've ever driven through, well, many parts of North Carolina and other parts of Appalachia, you have these uh, fences that are made by kind of these rough-hewn uh, logs, you know, these long strips where it'll be a few different uh, layers of, of wood. Um, and they're kind of at, you know, every so often they're, they're all cut the same length. I'm not doing a very good job of explaining this. <laughs> Usually you have a post and you have three long kind of rough cut logs or, or planks, um, that are kind of held in place by another post. Um, and they're kind of, they kind of overlap and there are different types of these fences and sometimes You'll have a pattern where they, you know, they're arranged so that the fence kind of goes up and down. Um, it really, it depends on the region. It depends on how much wood you have, I would imagine, um, and just the tradition in that area. But it's often called a ground worm, a worm fence, a rail fence. You also have um, the rider fence, the stake and rider fence. Um, lots of different terms for fences. And maybe in a future episode, I can go into that a little bit more. I would like to talk a little about uh, architecture at some point, so that, that might be a good topic for that episode. Uh, but for now, that's, that's the basics of it. And it's interesting that there are so many traditions um, tied up in laying these fences. Um, I see almost as many examples in our research for the fences as I do for the crops, which is it's pretty remarkable, but it also goes to show how important these fences were um, not so much in marking territory, perhaps, as uh, for cattle uh, and livestock um, to give them a boundary. Um, but along those lines, we have a book about superstitions of the Cumberland Mountains written in 1911 that says, If one lays the groundworm of a rail fence during the new moon, it will sink into the ground and rot. And the groundworm, of course, being that uh, bottommost uh, plank. So moving on a little bit, um, we have um, some different different superstitions I just wanted to go through that have to do with uh, various plants and bugs and animals, and there are so many of these, but I, uh, I went through my research and just decided to pick a few fun ones. Um, this first one in particular, because uh, last time I talked a lot about folk medicine and healing um, and yarb doctors or herb doctors, if you recall. Um, so this one has to do with the boneset plant, which is also known as kill-ye or cure-ye, which, if you remember, is used medicinally and does exactly what its name suggests. <laughs> you either get better pretty quick or you're done. Um, so uh, this is from a 1901 book, Southern Wildflowers. From time almost immemorial... Boneset has been utilized to make a strengthening tea. It is something that the, quote, Yarb doctor never forgets. As about borage and vervain, an old superstition exists that it will not thrive far away from human habitations. So this is really interesting, and I, I wonder about the origins of this one, because it really suggests that the plant likes to be close to people. So is this the thought that the plant itself likes it? Is it the thought that... 
Um, there's some other force that's putting this plant near human habitation to make life easier for them. I'm not really sure, but I, I would be curious about that. Um, looking at one about bugs, dragonflies. Um, so if you've spent time in the region, you know that dragonflies are a plenty, especially this time of year. I, I love seeing them. Um, of course, you know, they're higher in numbers near water. I remember seeing a lot of them out at uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. But there are a few different superstitions about those. Um, so we have, uh, first of all, one of the terms for dragonfly is snake doctor. So in Kentucky, we have Kentucky superstitions state that if you kill a dragonfly or snake doctor, it will bring bad luck. Or that if one lights on your line when you're fishing, the fish will not bite. So it's kind of interesting. So you don't want to kill them because it will bring bad luck. But apparently, if they come near enough to land on your fishing gear while you're trying to fish, that's bad luck as well. So I've always liked dragonflies. I, I kind of think they're a peaceful insect. But looking at that, I, I'm interested in dragonfly lore. Um, seems like they, they tend to bring a lot of bad luck. Well, I suppose, you know, if you're the fisher. Although if you're the fish... Seems like pretty good luck. I don't know. Next, we have an entry for water dog, which is a type of large salamander. And these things can get pretty hefty. Um, this is also called a thunder dog. Um, so again, from the 1911 book, Superstitions of the Cumberland Mountains, uh, if a turtle or water dog, a species of freshwater newt, Lay hold of one's toe, it will not release it until thunder is heard. That sounds terrible, <laughs> first of all. Um, and I'm wondering, like, did the name Thunderdog come from this superstition, or did the superstition come from that common name? Uh, there's just no way to tell. But if there's any truth to that, I suppose it's lucky for the people in these parts that you can hear thunder nearly every day this time of year, although... If, uh, if one of these water dogs grabs your big toe later in the fall, you might be in a tight spot for a little while. So moving on, we have another one about bugs. So this is about uh, news bees, news carrier bees. And when I first heard the term news bee, I thought my mind immediately went to something like spelling bee or quilting bee. But no, this is actually a bee, like the buzz buzz kind um, that we all like to scream and run away from. Um, so apparently there are two different types of news carrier bees. You have black ones and you have uh, yellow ones. Um, and there's a 1962 example that gives a really good uh, description of this. So the author writes, I saw my first steady bee of this year last Sunday, but have not seen a news carrier yet. And this was written in May, by the way. So they go on. The news carrier is colored like a yellow jacket, but much bigger and longer. It seems they all the time want to buzz around your ear. They said when they come around, they have got some kind of news that they want to tell, and most of the time, bad luck will happen someday to the one who the news carrier tries to tell them something. Um, we have other citations that say that the ones that are yellow are bringing good news, the ones that are black are bringing bad luck. And I'm wondering, is this like the proportion of yellow to black? 
I have seen these giant bees on my porch. Um, and I was just out there. I'm, I'm also an artist. I may have mentioned I like to do oil painting. Um, and my porch is, it's the right size. It's perfect for doing some outdoor painting. And I was painting out there for a while. And these huge insects would just buzz around me. And my porch is made of wood. And I have an issue with carpenter bees. And I usually just ignore them and let them ignore me. Um, but then these these enormous things were flying around me. And I just, I thought they were just a different type of carpenter bee. And I would just swat at them. And they'd buzz around me and leave me alone. And then um, I had a friend visit. And... <laughs> I'm like, oh, there's another one of those stupid carpenter bees. They're just everywhere. And the friend goes, that's, you know, that's a hornet. <laughs> I, just, I just about spit out my, uh, my drink. I was like, what? Like, yeah, that, those are dangerous. They can really hurt you. I had no idea. Um, but now I'm wondering, like, was it actually a hornet? Was it a news bee? Are news bees and hornets one and the same? I'm not really sure, but I'm also not sure that I want to hang around and find out. So um, after that experience, that conversation, I have not been painting on my porch very much at all. I've become a little bit skittish about it. So moving on um, to our last example. I think I'll wrap up here uh, for today. We have one about cats and relationships and of course being a cat owner myself i uh, found this interesting although i do not endorse this practice so this term is cat shaking or shake the cat um, and we have a lot of evidence for this um, but this example comes from a 2000 book by rose hauck about quilts in appalachia um, and it's a really small book but it, it's beautiful so many pictures if you're interested in quilting at all, if you're a quilter, um, many of my extended family members love quilting and, and quilts. Um, I highly recommend this book. The author is Hauk, H-O-U-K. Just a nice little volume to look through for inspiration or, or just to get a sense of what some of the quilting is like in this region. But anyway, Hauk writes, quilts are cloaked in superstition too. Like, quote, shake the cat, for example. When a quilt came off the frame, the unmarried women went outdoors, put a wary feline in the center of the quilt, held on to the corners, and bounced the nervous animal into the air. Whoever the cat landed closest to would be the next to wed. This is not a very nice thing to do. <laughs> so again, I don't endorse this. I'm just the, the messenger. I'm just the news bee in this case. Um, but in case you are not familiar, they talk about taking the quilt off the frame. So when you make a quilt, there are a few different steps involved. You know, you want to get your pattern ready, um, cut your pieces to how they need to be, arrange them, um, and then sew them together. But then you have the actual quilting part where you do the decorative stitching that attaches the quilt and then the filling or batting, usually cotton or some other material, along with the bottom layer of fabric. Um, so this will just, you know, be some kind of decorative stitching, usually in, in a uniform pattern that goes all over um, the, the surface of the quilt. And they would have quilting bees, as I mentioned earlier, and women would sit around a quilt that was in a, a large wooden frame uh, or different parts, like smaller frames where they would be working on the same quilt 
to finish it up, um, you know, all in the same day or in a short period of time. And they would all know uh, how to do the quilt stitching. And this was by hand, of course. So they would sit around and gossip or talk about whatever they wanted, you know. Um, sounds like just, you know, a nice girls gathering, I think. Um, and a very productive one at that. Um, so if they were using a large frame where it was just one giant frame for this quilt that was meant to go on a bed, um, once it was done, you know, they would inspect it and then they would loosen, usually it was some kind of screws or something at the sides of the frame. You loosen it and then take the quilt off and it's ready to go. So this was a tradition, um, to not only signify the, the completion of a quilt, which is a, a big undertaking. If you've ever made a full quilt, especially by hand, it takes forever. It's, it seems like a rewarding process. I've never done it, but I think they're beautiful. Um, but yeah, a tradition to signify the end of that process, uh, maybe to welcome, you know, the weather or if it's a gift for someone's uh, wedding, which was also something that was practiced quite a bit. Um, but then also, you know, very similar to the throwing of the bouquet at a wedding. Um, so that's kind of an interesting tradition. But again, I don't endorse that. And I hope that no cats were harmed in the making of those quilts. <laughs> Anyway, I think I will wrap up there for today. We could go on and on. There are an almost endless supply of these superstitions and beliefs. And again, I would love to hear yours. Um, if you're from the region, um, if even if you're from outside the region, superstitions and beliefs are, are just really interesting things. I think they tell a lot about a culture um, and people's daily lives, no matter what part of the world they're from. And I will probably touch on these this topic again later in the year. There are certain superstitions related to Christmas. Um, so the traditional Appalachian Christmas was not December 25th. It was actually in January. They called it Old Christmas. And there were a number of superstitions associated with that um, that may or may not still be practiced today. So stay tuned for that in a few months. Um, and of course, Halloween, we may have to revisit some of these as well or look at some of the spookier superstitions. But uh, please stay with me and thank you so much for tuning in. And again, thank you for your messages and your support. Um, and just enjoy the remaining dog days of summer. I wish you well. Take care. <laughs>